Good evening, everyone. I hope you're situated and getting cozy and comfy. I saw one wave in the back. Good, I'm glad you can hear me. <laughs> um, I'm gonna let that pass. That will happen frequently, so uh, just tune in. There's more chairs if people wanna move them to the back or if they need them, there's some more chairs over here. As Chris said, my name is Dana Dooley and um, I get to speak this evening, which is such a privilege. Um, I am, yeah. I'm thrilled to be here. We are talking about the table this evening, hence this beautiful display. Thank you, Kelsey, um, one of the girls in our community who's amazing and puts on these just ridiculous spreads. So we have been talking the last few weeks about our values as a community, and here's why. The last, what has it been now, seven months, 11 years since COVID began, um, <clears throat> it feels like that to me, have been, it's been a season of immense disorientation, right? I think I've felt it, we've all felt it, whether it's in our personal lives, in our work, in our relationships, not being able to see people, not being able to do the things we're, we're used to, but also in our spiritual lives. Um, we haven't been able to engage in the way that we're used to engaging. And so I think there's been this sense of what is this? What does it even mean? How does it even apply? You can only go to YouTube church for so long, I think, before the surrogate begins to feel just like that, a surrogate. And so the point of these few weeks is really to help us remember who are we as spiritual beings? What does it mean to be a part of this community? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus here and now? Um, and then how do we live into that? And so things like storytelling and prayer and worship have been um, really, really important to us. Um, and the value we get to talk about this evening is the table. Now, if you have joined Genesis since COVID, um, you won't know this, but before, in the long, 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 long time ago in a land very far away and long before parking lots and face masks and all the things we have to do now, we gathered every single Sunday around a meal. It was the thing that we did. It was actually the most consistent thing that we did. We sometimes worshiped by singing and taught. Sometimes we just had worship by singing. Sometimes we had prayer. But the one thing we did every single Sunday, every time that we gathered, is we came around the table. We would have a culinary theme um, that Sam would set, and everyone would bring a dish, and we would share food, and we would share stories, and we would take up the first, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour of our gathering just to eat together. And it wasn't something that we thought was cool or different. It was something that we believed was so fundamental to the, to the practice of Christianity, so fundamental to the life of Jesus that we couldn't have a service, that we couldn't gather, that we couldn't be together without eating. And so what we're going to talk about is something far more profound. It is something of God's created order for humankind, as well as his creative display for us as human beings. If you're wondering, I am pregnant, just, just in case. Um, just thought I'd throw that out there. This isn't COVID. Well, I mean, it's a COVID baby, but it's not a COVID baby, if you know what I mean. All right, so... 
I do want to acknowledge, as we talk about the table, that this can be a hard thing because we can't gather in the way that we're used to. This is our second week here, and what we're encouraging people to do is to bring picnic baskets, and with the people they're quarantining with, roommates, family, whoever it is, sit and enjoy a meal as a part of your, your, your service, as a part of your worship. So if you didn't know that, from now on, it's 5 p.m., bring a picnic, enjoy dinner. That's something that we're going to be doing together. But I know that there have been setbacks. I know that we can't gather in the way that we're used to. I know that that's tough. But what I hope to do this evening is breathe a little life back into the dream that we had for a gathered community. The thing that we hold to the truth that we see in the early church that we want to be true here and now in Costa Mesa. We are not living in the ideal. We are not living in a normal scenario. But we're going to go to the scripture and the beauty of what God intended, I hope, will lift up our eyes and remind us of what it means to be a people who share a meal together, even in the midst of a pandemic. So... With that, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis 1. I would encourage you to bring them. We don't have um, words or overhead projector at the time because of the light. So start bringing them with so you can read along with us. Um, What we're going to do is highlight a few moments in the scriptures, and there are so many, but I, I chose a few that we're more familiar with so we can kind of point them out as we go of where does God demonstrate this profound practice, the sustaining and sacred nature of the table of eating together. And then we'll land in what does this demonstration mean for you and I today? Sound good? Um, good. One, one person is in with this, which is all I need. I'm gonna, keep t- I'm gonna keep talking anyway, so it doesn't matter. Okay, Genesis 1, and I'm gonna read from verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created them, male and female. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds uh, of the air and over every creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seeds in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God looked at all he had made and said it was very good. Now, most of us are overly familiar with the creation story. Even if you didn't grow up in the church or maybe you got dragged here and you're not sure what this is all about, you've heard about how God created the world. However, there were multiple ancient narratives about the creation of mankind. And I want to, just for a brief second, kind of highlight a couple of these ancient narratives about why was the earth created, why did the gods create man. So the Sumerians, not Sumerian, Su, S-U, and the Babylonians, equally in their kind of respective religions, believed that the gods toiled in the earth. They tilled the fields, they, they tended the livestock, and they basically got to a point where they were so tired of this menial labor that they complained And so one of the gods came and said, I will make a servant for you. I will make someone to tend the fields and kind of take care of your menial tasks. 
In addition, the Babylonians believed that the second reason the gods created mankind was so that they could provide constant food and uh, drinks for the temple. Okay, so what we're talking about is a story in which you and I are glorified servants for greater beings, um, and that was kind of all we were allotted. The Greco-Roman version of this story is that um, we were created by Prometheus. He was um, did it created mankind much to the anger of the rest of the gods. Zeus was so angry that he'd made mankind. He'd made mankind stand upright, which was the big thing, like only the gods could stand upright. So we stand upright, so he's very angry about it, and he creates the first woman. Her name is Pandora, and to Pandora he gives a box, yeah. In the original, it's a jar, but a box as we know it. And he tells her that there's wonders and treasures inside, um, but don't open it. He knows she'll open it. And when she gets to earth, she opens it. And instead, he has given them plagues and diseases and all kinds of misery. And it's Zeus's way of kind of going, I hate you. There you go. Suck it. Um, so these are the alternate myths of why the world was created. And I say that because I want us to understand when we juxtapose them with the Genesis account, here is God for no other reason than because he wants to. He doesn't need us. He doesn't want us to, to serve him in that way. He creates man. And then he thinks, I don't want him to be alone, so I'm going to create for him a partner, someone to share in this adventure, someone to come alongside him, and he gives him community. And then he says, I'm going to give you the entire world to rule over. Everything you see, everything the light touches is yours. And in addition to that, he provides for him every plant for food, everything you can need to sustain your life. And in that moment, God himself, the creator of the universe, stands and he acts as host to mankind. John Damascus describes it like this, God's creating of the world is an act of hospitality. He is creating a space for that which is not himself, right? God is not going to live on this earth in that way. And then he makes a feast and provides all the food for everything he has invited into that space. Every animal, every human, everything there God has provided for. What I want us to see, friends, is that Eden housed, the Garden of Eden housed the first feast. In the midst of the cosmos, God created a garden, and there he laid a table that was encompassed the entire world, and he said, this is for you. This is for your provision. This is for your enjoyment. This is the gift that I give you, which means from day one, God was not only our creator, but he was our host. He was our provider. He was meeting our physical needs with food and in the process demonstrating a profoundly weighty spiritual truth about who he was. And this practice of God being host to mankind, we are going to see over and over and over again throughout the entire narrative. Quick note as I keep talking, in the Greek, eating and drinking or a shared meal, it's the same root word for hospitality. So we're going to see authors use variations of those words, some of the quotes that I read. But I want us to understand we're not talking about like Martha Stewart, okay? We're talking about the table. We're talking about God laying a table for you and I. All right, moving on. I could get stuck there. Genesis, I mean, Exodus 16. The Israelites have been enslaved, uh, if you remember the story, and God is delivering them. He's leading them out, and he leads them to liberation by the way of the desert, right? And in the desert, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing there. 
but God once again sets the table. Then the Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven, Genesis 16, for you. And the people will go out every day and they will gather enough that they need. He demonstrates his hospitality. Every single day there is quail and manna provided for the people of Israel. And this manna experience is intended by God to not only sustain his people through what would be a very long sojourn in the desert, desert, but to teach them that he is once again their provider and that he is a provider of abundance, that even in the most inhospitable environment, we're no longer in the garden, we're in the desert, but God once again is host to mankind and he is laying a table in front of them for them to enjoy. And what's important about this is God wants the people of Israel to understand his generosity in the form of this. Because when we get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the law is given to the people of Israel, what does he tell them they have to do? Now they have to be the host. Now they have to be the provider to those in need. And so written into the very law uh, that was given to the Israelites were, were things like gleaning, where they were not allowed to take all of the food from their fields. They were meant to leave some for, for the stranger, for the immigrant, for the poor, for the sick, so that everyone could come and partake of the harvest. God's hospitality was a characteristic. He didn't just want to exemplify himself, but he wanted his people to then embody and live out. Does that make sense? This is, what, this is who I am, and this is in the same way what I am asking you to be. And what I'm trying to do here, and I, I almost wanted to entitle this section of my message, a very, very, very brief history of, uh, or very, very, very brief theology of the history of food, because I feel like I'm rushing through it. But I want us to see the deeply spiritual and sacred weight that God gives this. That the practical kind of mundane aspect of eating together mirrors a profound theological reality about who God is and about who he has always called his people to be. Meaning how we are fed, how we eat, it matters to God how those around us are fed, how those around us are taken care of, how their needs are met, it matters to God. And then we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus. And I love this, Matthew and Luke both use this phrase, he came eating and drinking. That's how Jesus came. That was the thing that they used to describe him. It was one of the biggest pet peeves of the Pharisees that he ate with tax collectors and sinners and Gentiles and women. Um, people of no importance. They didn't understand why he would spend his time with them. But there was no discrimination at the table when Jesus was there. Shannon Francis Garvin puts it like this, one of the most conspicuous and ignored aspects of Christ's sojourn in human form was his compulsive propensity for gathering individuals to eat together and for turning mundane meals into recognized parties that he used to exemplify the coming kingdom of God. The table, friends, was the central work of the kingdom of God, not just a happenstance theological construct, okay? It wasn't just, oh, this works, we're sitting around, I'll use this. It was important. It was the precise image, he continues, Christ entrusted us with 
for understanding the form and work of the kingdom. And here's why, because it encompassed both the abundant provision of God as well as the inclusive nature of all who would come and dine. You see, the table, the shared meal, is the image of the kingdom of God as well as the kingdom of God itself. This, when we partake of this, this is the thing that we are engaging with. It demonstrates that when we eat together, there is a practical and a sacramental nature to the way in which we engage. What do we know about this time is that the table had become something else, that the people of God, the Israelites, had drifted away from this idea of caring for the poor, caring for the vulnerable, allowing food to be a way of generosity. And the table had begun something that was dictated by class and gender and economic um, prowess. And so Jesus comes again and he says, no, 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 this is what I intended it to be. This is what it's about. It's the same thing that Paul challenges in 1 Corinthians when he says your meetings do more harm than good. He's talking about the table. He's talking about the corruption of this thing. No, 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 this is not what God intended. And so when Jesus takes the bread and the wine, that's what we've commonly called now the Last Supper, and he says, do this in remembrance of me, he is redeeming this space. He is redeeming the idea of who we are called to be as a people of God. Only this time, the provision, the bread and wine, is a holy symbol for his body and blood, right? In the Old Testament, in the garden, he provided everything for them to eat, all the green. In the desert, he provided manna and quail, and he sits now at the table and he says, I'm going to provide for you again, but I'm going to provide with my very flesh, my very body, and I'm going to take it to the fullest extent so that you know the abundance of God is not limited by the constraints of mankind. He takes from himself and he redeems us here at the table. I'm going to take a sip of water. <laughs> I get passionate if you haven't heard me preach before. This is what it sounds like. Ah, that's going to sound really good on the recording. Sorry, everyone listening at home. You should have been here. All right, so... This is the very brief history. We've kind of jumped through the scriptures. What does this mean for us? What, what does this actually look like? Okay, I, Firstly, God demonstrates that he is our faithful provider, right? That he is a God of hospitality, that he is always giving and providing. Therefore, you and I, we provide for others. That's what the table means. The table means we provide for others just as God for no need of his own, not to satisfy any selfish longing, simply out of generosity and love. He created the garden. He gave Adam and Eve everything that was there. Just as God in the desert, he, he poured out manna and quail every single day, despite the fact that the Israelites disobeyed him time and time again. Just like Jesus um, in the New Testament said, here is my body broken for you. God demonstrates time and time again that no matter the circumstance, he will lay a table for us. He will provide. And every time we come to this, is it, an, it is an emblematic reminder of his abundance. And abundance, friends, should always be the hallmark of the kingdom of God. 
God is not a God of scarcity. God is not a God of limitation. And when we come to the table, we remember that. The table, this space, the shared meal, it should change the narrative. It should reorient our entire existence. Part of why we asked everyone to bring food when we used to gather and eat together was because the table is about generosity. Each and every one of us have an opportunity to be generous because the table is about showing up no matter where you find yourself, in the garden or in the desert. The table is about abundance. It's about remembrance. It's about living out the reality of God. The table is about knowing and being known. Thank you. It is, I will say, it is such a weird experience preaching in a parking lot because it is just like dead quiet in a weird way. Um, it's not bad. I don't, I don't, it's just an interesting, all of you should get up here and give it a go because it's an interesting experience. This is an active engagement. The table is something we partake in where our resources, where we realize the things that we have are not our things but they are God's hospitality entrusted to us to give to others. Friends, if we can begin to understand the creation, the entire world is God's hospitality towards us for all of mankind, then you and I as Imago Dei, as the image bearers of God on earth, we begin to see our role differently here and now. We begin to see that you and I are the table setters, that you and I are the space providers, that you and I are a hospitable presence in a very inhospitable world. I would argue or I believe that, that this space that Jesus gathered people around, that he drew people to, it was this microcosmos of his macro design. He goes, I'm going to show you right here and now at this small setting what I intend to do for all of humanity with everyone on the entire earth. I want to bring them together to a banquet feast called the kingdom of God. I'm going to show you what eternity looks like, and I'm going to show you at a mundane meal. He made space for us, and so we make space for others. All right, secondly, what, what does this demonstrate about God? Well, it demonstrates that all are welcome at the table. Therefore, we welcome all. Wilburn Ellisworth writes, much of the agenda of Jesus was revealed in the context of a meal. How he ate, where he ate, and especially with whom he ate, and what he did while present at a meal was often a political statement intended as a critique of the elite or a challenge to the ruling class. Strict social and religious structures separated those who belonged, those who were unclean, Purity codes determined who was acceptable to God, but Jesus unconventionally subverted this. Here it goes. He understood that there is more to a meal than physical hunger. Seeds of systematic change are sown when there is a place at the table for persons or perspectives that custom or tradition would exclude. Christ's ministry on earth was about that. It was about welcoming people to a shared meal. And he used food, he used the table to embody that. It was his theological display. And it proved not only that he is an abundant God who wants to provide for all, but he is a God who welcomes everyone who will come and dine. 
The kingdom of God makes it possible for the poor, the outcast, the stranger to have life and dignity. The kingdom of God is a realm of, the hosp- of, a realm of hospitality. The kingdom of God seemed wild and raucous that everyone would have a place, that everyone would deserve to come and eat. This is, a, this is a space of creativity. This is a space of life, of community, of individuality. And God offended the religious people because he welcomed anyone who would come and dine. Friends, the kingdom of God is our salvation because we are the Gentile. We are the sinners. We are those who did not have a place at the table before. And just as Jesus made room for them, he makes room for us. Can I just say that somewhere along in our kind of Western psyche, we've come to the understanding that church, even in a parking lot, is a place for the righteous. That church is a place for people who figured it out, who've kind of done their penance, and now they can commit to this space. They can come, they can sing the songs, they can do the right thing. But if we think of church as a table, if we think of church as a shared meal, and we look at the scriptures, and we take Jesus as our example for a shared meal, then what does that mean about the thing that we call church? It means that everyone is welcome. It means that there is no entrance fee of righteousness for the hospitality of God. He says anyone who will come and dine is is welcome. And as you come and dine, you will experience the goodness of God. You will experience my generosity. You will experience my holiness, even when it is not your own. You will experience my righteousness, my goodness, my love, my compassion. I think we need to think about the church far more as a table than something else. Come and dine, Jesus said. Come and experience I read a stat recently that said only 17% of American families eat together regularly. And of that 17%, half of them do it around the TV. Which means that on any given night of the week, 8.5% of families are sitting around a table and actually engaging in meaningful shared meal. And if Mother Teresa was right and loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world, then friends, can I be bold enough to say that here begins the cure? This. It's not the end all be all, but here is a place where people can be known, where people can be heard. Here is a place for honesty. Here is a place where you and I get to focus on the stories of others, where we get to stop being consumed with the own realities of our lives and we invest in those around us. Here is a place where our differences can enrich us, where we are beautifully laid bare and where, friends, where we are unburdened of the need to impress God or impress others. That is what the table offers us. There's no pretense. There's no need to be anything other than what we are. Jesus says, come and dine. Finally, what does it mean for us? We provide for others. We welcome all. And the last thing I think the scripture shows us is that God demonstrates that we do this in remembrance of him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. What does he mean when he says do this? I really wish, and I genuinely thought about doing it, that I could have had a table filled with actual, like all the food you can imagine. It wouldn't be sanitary, so I didn't, but I really wanted to invite us because when Jesus says do this, he's not talking about a wafer and wine. He's talking about a meal. He's talking about a shared experience. He's talking about every time you come to the table, you can do it in remembrance of me. Every meal, every moment, every, every shared space like this, you can do it in remembrance of me. Communion invites us to gather, quote, and to remember all of it. The creation, slavery, the covenant, the early church, the meals, the miracles, the service, the laughter, the healing, the embrace, the teaching, the sacrifice, the body and life of Jesus. It is so much more than simply the crucifixion. Yes, it is about that, but it is about remembering the life of Jesus. It is about remembering his generosity, his love, his compassion, his patience, his service of others. What if when we took the bread tonight and every time we came to the table, if we took it, the shared meal, and we remembered the moments in which God provided? What if we took it and remembered the moments in which he fed the thousands? What if we took it and remembered the moments when Jesus saw the outcast, the prostitute, the leper? What if we took it and remembered the moments when Jesus healed the blind, when Jesus resurrected the dead? What if by repetition and experience of this table, our souls began to be seared with the practices of Jesus and how he chose to live, not just how he chose to die. When I come to the table and I remember all of Jesus, suddenly I come to serve and not to be served. When I come to the table and remember Jesus, suddenly I think about the way in which he washed people's feet. Suddenly I think about the way in which he stood over the woman caught in the act of adultery and he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Suddenly I remember those who Jesus invited in and I stand as an imago Dei, as an image bearer of God and I do the same. Do this in remembrance of me in remembrance of everything that Jesus was, in remembrance of everything that he stood for, in remembrance of everything that God is doing on this earth. You know, the early church called this the love feast. They didn't call it Sunday service. They didn't call it church. When they gathered once a week, they called it the love feast. It was about experiencing eternity it was about experiencing divine restoration and resurrection made manifest in a meal. That's what we are invited into every time we gather. We are invited to participate in the life and the death and the resurrection and the ongoing restoration of Jesus. We're going to take communion in a second, but let's, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Jesus, I, even as I sat this week, I felt my heart so overwhelmed by the bigness of what you intended. I can think of it so small, and yet the, the encompassing reality of who you are is made on display in, in the bread and the wine and the food and the table. 
And this evening, even as we, we take of, of the Eucharist, of communion, let's take a moment before we, we partake and remember. Remember the ways in which he has demonstrated his provision. Remember the ways in which he has demonstrated his abundance. Remember the ways in which he has welcomed you when you felt unwelcome. That is what we partake of today.